If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And we're in the Lord's Prayer together. Just this week and then one more week in the Lord's Prayer. All right, so as we have been, let's all uh, look at the screen and we're going to read the Lord's Prayer together as, as we begin. Let's read together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, and it's on this last phrase that we're going to focus our attention tonight. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And if you have an ESV and you're looking at chapter 6, verse 13, you'll notice that that is not even in your Bible. Did you notice that? So first thing we need to do then is discuss why it is that we're reading that. We need to discuss why some Bibles have it in there and some do not. And so I'd like to just take a moment and explain that because this, can, this kind of stuff can be real tricky if we don't know why the Bible, see, we, the, you know, some Bibles have some, they're not all the same. It's just we get lost in what's going on here exactly. And so we just want to know and have these things explained to us and then we just have a good understanding of what's happening here. Why, why are we reading this if it's not even in our Bible? Is it scripture? Is it not? Where, what is this thing? So um, I, I, uh, we'll, we'll start by just looking at the two different versions of this. And uh, on this next slide, the ESV is at the top, um, and it's very similar if you have an NIV, a CSB, or even an NET. Probably none of you have that, but another good, um, basically, word-for-word -word translation. Um, and, and all of them basically say the same thing. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that's where it stops. Verse 13 stops. But if you have an NASB or a KJV, you're going to notice that there's more to it, quite a bit more to it, actually. So uh, it says, uh, lead us not to temptation, deliver us from evil. That's the same. But then it also says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, I, well, I, I grew up, uh, well, I say grew up, but when I was young, I attended a United Methodist Church with my family, and the Lord's Prayer was recited uh, quite often. And the version that was recited was this version from the KJV, and so I, I, it's, it's ingrained in my brain, the ESV version, which is why I always look at the screen and read it, because I know that by instinct I'm going to mess up, and when we're trying to read something together, that's not good. So, um, but I just, I have the KJV kind of ingrained in me, but the KJV includes uh, this tag right here, this last little section. Why is that? Well, when we think about our English Bible, what do we have to go back to to say, should it be there or not? We're, what do we need to think about? 
where does our mind need to go? To the manuscripts. That's right. So when we think about should something be in our English version or not, and we look back at the manuscripts, that process is called somebody get it. Textual criticism. Textual criticism. That is correct. We spent a lot of time talking about textual criticism, didn't we? Um, so, textual criticism wants to know what is actually part of Scripture and what is not. That's what textual criticism wants to know. What is part of the text? So, we want to know, is this part of our Bible or is it not? Now, this is quite a bit of text here, isn't it? So, when some manuscripts have it and some don't, what is that called? Textual variant. So textual variant. So uh, there's, a, there's variant readings, right? There are, there are lots of textual variants, okay? Uh, but this is a pretty big one because that's, that's a lot of words. Some of the manuscripts have them, some, some don't. So should it be part of our Bible? Should it not, you know? Um, it's not just a matter of, well, the King James Version has it. I don't know why you're taking all these words out of the Bible, you know? So part of, part of the argument for KJV-onlyism actually is how many more words it has than the other translations. See all these words you're missing? Um, more is not necessarily better if God never said it. So um, we want to be careful to look back at what the manuscripts have to say. Um, so here is something that you may or may not find interesting on the next slide. When we go back to what the Greek has to say, I compared two versions. One is from the version that, that I regularly use, the Nestle Allen 28th edition. And you can see that it's shorter. Apotuponaru, uh, that last phrase there at the end uh, from the evil one, you'll notice that it, it looks exactly the same, the white part. That's, that's all that's important here, okay? First two lines look exactly the same, don't they? If you compare letter for letter, uh, they look exactly the same. Um, forget the little marks on the, that's kind of insignificant at this point. But the bottom version comes from the TR 1550. 1550 is the year, okay? 1550, uh, a Greek compilation of uh, all the best manuscripts according to certain people. They got together and they said, here's the manuscripts we have and we're going to come up with a single Greek text. That text was called the Textus Receptus, and there was an English version based on the Textus Receptus that became famous, known as King James Version of the Bible, the authorized version, which came out in 1611. So notice the Greek text behind it came out in 1550. Okay, so about 60 years later, this English Bible comes out that becomes the standard English Bible for many, many years. Um, but the thing is, is that it was based on this 1550 version of the Greek text. And when Erasmus compiled all his Greek manuscripts, how many did he have? I know you don't remember. Uh, I had to look back and remember. Uh, he only had 25 Greek manuscripts. So he took his 25 Greek manuscripts and he kind of put them all together and his Greek manuscripts had this. So he put it in the text. Now, the issue with Erasmus' Greek manuscripts is that they were all Byzantine. Byzantine simply means that they were all late-date manuscripts. 
And so they were from about the 9th to 11th centuries, uh, which is a pretty late date manuscript given that the texts were written in the first century, right? So you're pretty far removed. So he didn't have any early manuscripts. Anybody remember how many manuscripts we currently have? Greek, Greek manuscripts, roundabout. 100,000, is that too many or too few? That's too many. We have about 5,800. There are about 5,800 Greek manuscripts and Erasmus had 25. And another good thing about all the Greek manuscripts we have is that we have very early Greek manuscripts as well. So there are a lot more late date Byzantine manuscripts but they're late date, right? They're far removed from the source. And there are fewer early date manuscripts, but they're closer to the source. So the interesting thing is this, is that although you could say, well, a majority of the Greek manuscripts have this in it. Okay, but the majority of the Greek manuscripts are late date. But if you go back closer to the source, the early manuscripts do not contain this. So is the argument. Of course, I like to challenge things. I, I didn't know whether that was actually true or not. So uh, there actually is a third century Greek manuscript that contains this called uh, Codex Washington, uh, uh, Washington, Washington, uh, hang on, let me, let me, uh, let me get my tongue untied. Washingtonius, Washington, Washingtonius, Washingtonius. Hang on, I'll say, I'll say it right in a second. Uh, it's, it lives in Washington, D.C., so they came up with a fancy word for it. I can't even say the word right now. Um, it may be that I've only ever said it in my head and never out loud. I think that's actually probably the issue. Um, but anyway, it actually contains this, but it's a third century Greek manuscript um, but the issue is that actually it was updated over time and so Matthew is actually Byzantine whereas the rest of that manuscript or other parts of it come from actually different eras so when you actually go back and you look at that they say well see it's there there's an early Greek manuscript but actually someone went and updated that later on to include that so actually no it's not there so um, ultimately, uh, you can go back, though, because you're wondering now, then why have you included it in the Lord's Prayer, and why are we even talking about it tonight, right? That probably should be your next question. Um, well, because there's something really interesting. I've shown you that it's really not part of the manuscript tradition early on, so in textual criticism, the shorter reading is always the preferred reading, okay? And the more difficult reading is always the more preferred reading. And so, uh, this is a longer reading, which automatically shows you that it's not a preferred reading because it's a longer reading. Uh, so the shorter reading is always preferred because scribes were more likely to uh, add than delete, right? Because you want to be on the safe side. Let's just go ahead and add it because I don't know if it's part of the word or not. But if you delete it, there's no going back. So scribes were more prone to add than to delete. So the shorter reading is preferred. That's why. So this is a longer reading. But anyway, I've showed you that it really in the manuscript tradition, it shouldn't be there. But there's a catch, because there is something called the Didache. And the Didache is the basically the teaching of the 12. The we've talked about this before. You might remember it. And, um, and it, it includes something. 
uh, when it, because it, it has a section that talks about the Lord's Prayer in it. Now, it's not scripture, but it comes from the late first century, about the same time uh, that John was writing, for example. And it says something about the Lord's Prayer in it. And actually, it quotes the Lord's Prayer from Matthew. So aren't you interested to know whether or not it contained this or not? I was very interested to know. You may not be. You're probably ready for this portion to be over with. We're almost there. Uh, It says, as it quotes the Lord's Prayer, for yours is the power and the glory forever. That's it. That's all it says at the end. It does not have the kingdom or amen at the end. Now, fast forward just a little bit to... um, uh, the fourth century, which is the 300s, right? And you have a guy named John Chrysostom, and he wrote a, a sermon, and he was talking about the Lord's Prayer. Third century, or fourth century, so in the 300s. So this is 200 years removed from when it was written or about, okay? He writes a sermon, and uh, obviously commenting on Greek texts, right? That's all he would have had. And in his sermon from the fourth century, it includes, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Interesting, isn't it? So obviously, John Chrysostom had Greek manuscripts that had it in it from the fourth century. But we don't. So, in other words, it's kind of a difficult situation. But... Here, okay, let's just get to the answer, okay? So there was a long version from at least the 4th century, a short version from at least the 2nd century. How do we make sense of this? Is it original? Um, two answers. Answer, yes. It was used in liturgy, and it was omitted from the text by tradition. So here's what would happen. The church gathers. You know what liturgy is, right? Uh, readings. Uh, reading that the church would all read together. And so the church gathers, and... Uh, they recite this, and either the priest alone or the congregation alone would say the tag at the end, for yours is the king and the power and the glory forever, amen. And so when they heard that, they thought, oh, that's just part of the liturgy. That's not part of the scripture because we've divided it up when we say it. So like the whole church would say the whole thing except this last part, which was left for the person up front to say alone. Okay, And so when someone out there heard that and tradition got going, they would think, oh, so I get that part's part of the text, but the other part's not. So when scribes were writing, they left that last tag out. That's how you would answer yes. Okay, I suppose I just wouldn't answer that. I think it was not original to the text. So I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no, it was not original to the text. However, it was used in liturgy and became part of the text by tradition. Um which is why you see it in the Didache, which is why you see it in a sermon manuscript. Okay, so um, according to the Greek manuscripts, no, it's not original, but it became part of the text as it was used in churches. So then, why was it used in churches and where did it come from? That's really the big question. Why were the churches using this tag at the end? Where did it come from? If it was not original to the text, in other words, if Jesus didn't actually say it when he was teaching his apostles to pray, then where did it come from? That's the question. Why did the ESV not include it in the text? Well, because of the manuscript tradition, that's why. But then why do we hang on to it by tradition? And why have we chosen to? 
the church has been hanging on to this by tradition since the second century. So I'm not too ready to give it up, right? But why? And where might it have come from? So I'd like to take you to a text, and we're going to spend a little bit of time there. And uh, the text that we're going to is maybe one you wouldn't suspect, but it's from First Chronicles 29. I don't know how much time you've been spending in Chronicles lately. But 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Share with you my theory of its origin. I don't have a lot of I don't have a lot of information to back this up. It's just a theory, working theory. But it's kind of it regardless of the fact, this is entirely biblical by other accounts, right? Uh, the fact that we're saying that the kingdom is God's kingdom and that all power is God's power and that all glory is his glory and we say amen to that, we, we don't have a problem with that, do we? I mean, <laughs> it's a pretty clear idea. Uh, but I think that it finds its origins um, here in First Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 11. It says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand, uh, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you our God, and praise your glorious name. Okay, so there's just a couple of verses. But you can already see, without me even saying anything, that all the concepts, even just it feels, the, the feeling of it is the same. For yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power and the glory and the victory forever. And how does it end? Well, we thank you. We praise you, O oh God. This is, a, this is a prayer. Who is praying this prayer? And what is the context? That is what I find very interesting. That is very interesting. Because this is David, King David is praying this prayer. And he is praying it uh, as he is passing the kingdom of Israel over to his son, Solomon. So it is David's prayer for the establishment of the kingdom of his son, Solomon. Um, if you back up just a little bit, go to chapter 28. Look at verse 6. This is First Chronicles 28. Verse 6. He, God said to, to David, God said to David, It is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. Okay, so here's, here's what I'm pointing out to you. Is that David was really struggling here because the, he was getting very old and things weren't quite going right and someone was trying to take power who shouldn't have been taking power and Solomon was not becoming king as he should have so David had to step up and and authoritatively say it is Solomon who is taking over the kingdom 
and then there are some some weird events that happen right there actually because then then David wants to count uh, all the people of, of Israel and that was really really bad like, I mean, it was a sin against God for him to do what he was doing and so the Lord appeared to him and said listen you got three options um, they're all really bad but I'm gonna let you pick so he chose to have pestilence sent on the land and a bunch of people died tens of thousands of people died and it said it was done by the hand of the angel of the Lord came down and did this and uh it, this is all the, or surrounding this circumstance. And so God kind of asserts himself and his power and reminds David who's really in charge, right? And then David says, okay, I'm going to hand over the kingdom. I'm going to do things. Listen, and so God says to David, God kind of intervenes and says, Solomon, your son, shall build my house and my courts. So David already had plans to build God's house, right? He had plans. He was going to do it. He, he wanted to do it. Um, but he said, no, it is Solomon who's going to build my house. I've chosen him, and I will be his father. And I will, this is God speaking, I will establish his kingdom forever. If he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. Did that happen? Did Solomon finish strong? Solomon did not finish strong. His kingdom is not an everlasting kingdom. There is only one everlasting kingdom. And it is God's kingdom. Yours is the kingdom. And the power and the glory forever. These are three things that kings want, by the way, right? The kingdom, that's my kingdom. And the power, kings have power, right? And glory and majesty yeah, that's something a king has and wants. But every person, including all kings, need to recognize, as David did in this prayer, yours, O Lord, is the greatness. The king of Israel is saying this. Yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. Not mine. This kingdom is not mine. This kingdom is not Solomon's. It is your kingdom. And you are exalted as head above all, not me. Now, riches and honor come from you. I acknowledge that. Did David have riches and honor? David had riches and honor. Did Solomon have riches and honor? Solomon had riches and honor. He said, both of these come from you, and you rule over all. And it's in your hand. You're in your hand are power and might. And it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. And so, because of the connection here to the establishment of a kingdom, and Jesus says, I am establishing a kingdom. And let me tell you how we will pray according to this kingdom. And... Uh, he prays. He said, here's how you need to pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Why? Because it's in your hand to give it. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Because it's your kingdom and it's your power and it's your glory and it's in your hand to do all these things. And so it only naturally follows that this is a good summary to put at the end that brings our mind back to the establishment of the kingdom of Israel and how this is the establishment of the everlasting kingdom, the true everlasting kingdom that Solomon failed to accomplish, right? There's no king of Israel who ever had an everlasting kingdom, right? If they had an everlasting kingdom, we don't need another king. But we do need a king, and we have a king. His name is Jesus, and it's his kingdom. It's an everlasting kingdom. And so there is a strong connection here uh, between this and uh, this kingdom prayer. And so I believe that as uh, people were reflecting on this in the early Jewish audience, which it would have been, right? The early Jewish audience was well acquainted with this event and this prayer. And they saw the connection very well, right? And so I believe that it became tradition very early on to kind of do a throwback to what's happening back here because they were so well acquainted with it and it's all still true. But it's also showing that this is that everlasting kingdom that will never end, right? Does that make sense? I told you I didn't have a whole, a whole lot of evidence here, but I, I see the connection. And you know what? It is um, this, what we have here. By the way, this is another reason I took us here is because First Chronicles uh, 29 says everything that Matthew 6, 13b says. So it is in Scripture, and it is something worthy for us to consider, and it is something that King David prayed at a very pivotal time in the history of Israel. Um, acknowledging that although he is great in power and glory and might, there is none greater in power and glory and might than God himself. Although David's kingdom is great, God's kingdom is the great everlasting kingdom, right? All these parallels make sense. So all I wanted to do here at the end is I'm going to give you four references, and these are very brief, but uh, other uh, New Testament authors kind of saying basically the same thing and uh, how it, we can see how it kind of just became tradition to always give God the glory at the end. Let's end by giving God glory. So it's called a doxology is what it's called, a giving of praise. And so you kind of end by giving God all the praise and glory. Doxology, the root of that coming from the Greek word doxa, which is glory, giving God glory doxology, giving him glory and praise. And how do you do that? By just lifting up his name. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let it be. That's a good way to end. And it's, that's why I say I'm just, I'm not ready to give that up. The church didn't give that up for a long time, and it is biblical whether it is actually tagged onto this verse or not. Biblical concepts, something that's good. So let's just look at a couple other. I have Paul Peter, Jude, and John, okay? Paul says in Romans 11.36, Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. Hear the parallel ideas there? And how it's just, it's a large-scale summary closing doxology. 
for from him and through him and to him are all things. These are big overarching words, right? Like encompassing a, just a grand scheme of things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. A big doxology conclusion. So how about Peter? 1 Peter 4.11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves, serves with the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And there's about to be one more sentence. But that is at the end of talking about how God is gifting the church and how you need to take the gift that you've been given and uh, use it to God's glory. Don't let it sit in a box and dwindle and get dust on it. But instead, use it. Um, But it says, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jude 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You get the feel of of all these just closing grand sentences that just lift the name of God high. And uh, that's, that's what they're doing. And so this becomes part of how we how things would just end. How do you end? By lifting up the name of God, by lifting up his name high, by, by just saying, let these things be, remembering God in his rightful place. And then the last one, Revelation 1.6. And he made us a kingdom, priest to God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I added that one. I had lots of choices here. I scaled it down to four. Because this is, there's a lot more, a lot more examples of this. I only gave you four. I just wanted to get a sampling of some different authors here. Because I want you to see that it's not just one author that does this. We're reading it in Matthew. We read it before in First Chronicles. But it's something that we find all throughout Scripture is that the people of God just set themselves in a position to say, let me see God in his rightful place and let me see myself in my rightful place. It is his glory, his power, his kingdom, his dominion forever and ever and ever. Amen, so let it be. It's just these kind of words, they lift God up, they put him in his place and they push us down and they bow us before him and they put us in our rightful place. And I believe that is why it's tagged onto the end of the Lord's prayer because it ends by putting God in his rightful place. It ends by putting God up high where he should be and reminding us where he belongs, reminding us that it's his kingdom, it's all about his power, it's all about his glory forever. Amen. Before you were and after you're gone, it's still about God's kingdom, God's glory, God's power forever. Amen. That's how it is. It's all about God. Um, and, and I hope that in kind of working through this that we've seen that. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Right? Um, even though these are petitions, which is true, um, they work on our heart and they help us to see our, uh, ourselves as we should. And uh, if ever we're coming to prayer and not putting God in his rightful place, then there is something very, very wrong with our attitude of prayer. We'll take next week and just have some closing thoughts on uh, revisiting 
the, the Lord's Prayer in, in total and kind of seeing maybe what we might give as a full thought. Of, uh, we've been looking at it in detail, right? And now we're going to kind of step back and look at the big picture uh, next week, okay, as we close things out. Let's pray together tonight. Lord, thank you for this time together tonight. And uh, it, it's so good to just, we, we talk about so many things, but we, we look back and I, I think maybe tonight we're just reminded that we are just a little snapshot of believers in this particular period of time. And we're just joining with the masses of your church from thousands of years. We're, we're just joining in in the people that have been giving you glory. It's not a new thing. Your name will be glorified. And it's our desire, that is our desire, that your name would be lifted high that we would find ourselves in our right position. It's, we want to give you glory. It's your glory, your power, your kingdom. Uh, we acknowledge that, and we are your servants. We want your name to be lifted high. We want your kingdom to come, and uh, we want your name to be praised and for you to be given glory. And uh, we simply say that with the rest of Christian history because this is right. This is how we want to see you and this is how we want to live our lives. We want to live our lives continually bowing before you and seeing you for who you are. So help us in our perspective in life and just help us to put things in right perspective. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much for being here tonight. And... Uh,